You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Psalm 14, Psalm 14. Just a quick refresher as to what the Psalms are about before we read Psalm 14. There's a definition that I share every week from Dr. Kendall Easley. He was a professor of mine in seminary. And he sums up the Psalms in one sentence like this. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So the Psalms are valuable because they help us to understand how we can walk through good times and trust God and worship God and seek God. And we can walk through hard times and trust God and worship God and seek God. The Psalms are a reminder that whatever we're going through emotionally, we can come to the Lord with that. And John Piper picks up on the theme of our emotions when he writes, The Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And that's why the Psalms are so near and dear to our hearts. Because no matter what we're experiencing in our lives, emotionally, we can find a connection point somewhere in the book of Psalms. That's why we love them so much. We've made it to Psalm 14. Let's read it together, and then we're going to walk through it and make some comments and move on from there. Notice it says there in the small print, this is to the choir master of David. So this is a song written for worship. It's a hymn that the Jews used to worship uh, the one true God. And it says it's to the choir master. So this was for the choir leader to incorporate. And it says there, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a catchy tune, isn't it? Hey, Daniel, listen, let's sing. The fool said in his heart. There is no God. I mean, that's not the kind of songs we're used to singing, right? This is pretty strong language. But it starts, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. That's a feel-good psalm, isn't it? The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all, everyone say all. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, for the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Uh, This psalm is interesting because the exact words are found in in Psalm 53. Almost the exact same psalm. There's a few differences at the very end, uh, but Psalm 14 and 53 are uh, companion psalms. Some of the exact same uh, wording. And some of these words are used in the New Testament, which we'll get to in just a few moments. But there are two aspects in this psalm as David muses about God and man. There's probably more than that, but I want to just focus on 
uh, these two aspects and the interplay between the two. First of all, we see in this psalm the sad universality of depravity. Say that five times fast. The, the sad universality of depravity. He begins this song, this psalm, by saying, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. So he's talking here about an atheist, right? The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Now, when you and I think about atheism in today's culture, we usually think about atheism as a philosophical uh, position. Uh, it's, a, it's a position that people hold where they posit there is no God. I believe there is no God is what an atheist would um, say. And so that's what we're thinking. We think of, of atheism, a philosophical uh, position. Uh, a little over a decade ago, there was a group of men called the New Atheists, and they became kind of popular in pop culture. They wrote some books, names like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris. And these guys uh, were getting a lot of publicity as the new atheists. That's all kind of faded away. And, you know, theists are marching right on. Uh, they didn't make much of a dent in theism. But uh, for a while, atheism was a big deal. And so some, some scholars in the church wrote rebuttals uh, towards these books they were writing about atheism. And they were holding a philosophical uh, position. And I think about that time, it was, uh, it, again, it was a big deal for a while, and I think about what they were saying and what they were writing, and, you know, no matter how hard they tried, these philosophical atheists, they, they just couldn't deal with two major things. They, could, they couldn't answer two major um, problems with atheism. The first one is the issue of first cause. And, and by that I mean, why is there something a universe, rather than nothing. Why, why is the universe here? And the atheist's answer would be, well, it, it, there's, there's random, uh, there, it, you know, it goes back to uh, evolutionary um, processes that have unfolded um, through millions and millions of years. Um, but, but they would say that there's no God behind it. And and uh, they, they, they could not give a good answer as to first cause. Um, because, you know, physics says that if something happened, something had to cause it to happen. That's just good physics, right? If something's moving, something made it move, right? That's just, just good common sense, really, is what that is. And so um, the atheists are asked this question. However you believe it all began, the, the, the universe, there's something here rather than nothing. What was the first cause? And they can never come up with a satisfactory answer that lined up with their atheism. In fact, I don't know if you remember this or not, but a man named Ben Stein produced a documentary called Expelled in 2008. He was going around to, to um, places of education, university campuses, and he was interviewing atheists and asking them some questions about their belief system. And he actually had an interview with Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous of the new atheists. He's an uh, evolutionary biologist, uh, author. Uh, he's a popular name in that sphere. And he was interviewing Richard Dawkins. And if I wouldn't have seen the interview and heard it with my own ears, I wouldn't have believed that Richard Dawkins said this. But Ben Stein was asking him about first cause. Why do you believe there's something rather than nothing? He talked about the processes he believed uh, that a molecule... Um, generated another molecule, and over, over time, through evolutionary processes, we have what we have now. 
And Ben Stein said, well, what was the first cause? And he said, we don't know the answer to that. And Ben Stein said, well, what about the, the, the fact that we see in the universe that there's some intelligence behind it, that it, it's, it's situated just right for man to, to be able to exist in this, in this universe. And, and, and it seems like there's design in our, in our body and in, uh, in the, the, the earth and in the solar system and in the, the galaxies. and in the, you know, It seems like there's some design behind it all. And uh, Richard Dawkins said, well, it wasn't, it wasn't God. And he said, well, what was the first cause? And Richard Dawkins says, well, it's very possible. Now, again, I listen, you can, you can Google this, expel documentary Ben Stein. Richard Dawkins said, it's possible that there is a highly advanced um, species of aliens that came and started the process that resulted in the known universe. So Richard Dawkins said, no way is God behind this. But he also said, it could be aliens. <laughs> and listen, by him saying it could be aliens, he was admitting intelligent design. That someone had to think through this to be able to get all this going in the right direction. And so, you know, people got into new atheism, they were reading the books, but they can't come up with a satisfactory answer to first causes. The Bible tells us, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Uh, and I'll go with that instead of highly developed Alien species, all right? And they were smart enough to start a universe, and we haven't heard from them since. But anyway, that's, you know, that's a whole other issue. They also, the philosophical atheists, did not have a, a satisfactory answer for the moral argument for God's. And, and so there's, a, there's a, a, an argument for God's existence called the, the moral argument, and it goes something like this. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Because if everything is, is random selection, natural selection, then there are no such thing as morals, right? Everything's just random. There's no such thing as right and wrong. It's just, it's just how things have evolved and the strong eventually survive and, and survival of the fittest. And there's, there's, there, there's really no category of right and wrong. And so if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Second part of the argument is this. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. And, and what that argument says is this. Why does everybody, no matter what they say they believe, why does everybody have some sense of right and wrong? Even the most liberal, off-the-wall professor that says there's no such thing as objective truth, there's no such thing as absolute truth, if you said, okay, I'm going to take your car for the day, and you get in and drive it off, they'll say, wait a minute. That's not, you can't take my car, right? Everybody has a sense of fairness and right and wrong. It's been marred by the fall. But in Romans chapter 2, the Bible says God has created man in his image. That means we have a conscience. We have this sense that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And so if, if the atheist position is correct, the atheist position, if there's no God and it's all natural selection, then you can't say torturing babies for fun is wrong. You can't. Because it's all just, it's just all, if you're in a, in a place you can get away with it, you're in a culture that allows it, and you can, you, can, you can do that because there's no moral values. But we all know, everybody knows that's wrong. You don't torture babies, right? We all know that that's not right. 
There, there is moral reality in the universe because a God made the universe who is a God of moral absolutes. And so again, uh, atheists cannot come up, the new atheists cannot come up with a good, a good way to explain the facts that there, there, there are moral codes that people live by, whether they say it or not. It all goes back to the God who made us. But to me, the most interesting thing about the atheists... And this is the new atheists, the philosophical atheists, those that are writing books and, and teaching in universities and, and uh, places like that. The most interesting thing about the new atheists is they don't believe in God, but they talk about him all the time. And it goes something like this. There is no God and I hate him. I hate him. Right? Which gets to the real issue. The issue is not... I don't believe there's a God. The issue is, I don't like the idea that there's a God. I don't want to live accountable to God. And so, when we think about atheism as, as a position, we see that it has a lot of different holes, and we could talk a lot more about that. But I think it's interesting that the, the new atheists in late, early 2000s were, that didn't make sense, late, early 2000s, like 2007, 8, 9, 10, right in there, were very, very popular. They were the going thing, and now you don't hear about them anymore. And they really made no dent in those who believe there is a God. But back to Psalm 14. When David says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, he's not talking about atheism as a position. In fact, in ancient times, if someone said, I don't believe there's a God, or gods, or a pantheon, they would have been seen as insane. That wasn't even a, a, an option back in those days. They, they, they would have been marginalized if they said, I don't believe there is a God or there are gods. Uh, everyone in those days believed in uh, the idea of deity. So when he says the fool says in his heart there's no God, he's not talking about atheism as a position. David here, listen, is referring to atheism as practice. He's talking here about practical atheism. Now you say, Pastor Wade, what is practical atheism? Well, look, look there in your notes. Practical atheism is living as if there is no God. No matter what you say, but you are living in such a way that you are not responding to the reality of God. Practical atheism is living as if there is no God. A Puritan writer uh, from... Um, hundreds of years ago, named Stephen Sharnock, wrote this about practical atheism. He wrote, Practical atheism is natural to man in his depraved state and very frequent in the hearts and lives of men. And he goes on to say, None seeks after God as his rule, as his end, as his happiness, which is a debt the creature naturally owes to God. He desires no communion with God. He places his happiness in anything inferior to God. He prefers everything before him, glorifies everything above him. He has no delight to know him and regards not those paths that lead to him. He loves, listen to this line, he loves his own filth better than God's holiness. His actions are tinctures and dyed with self and are void of that respect that is due from him to God. So he's saying humanity, whether they say they believe in God or not, live practically like there is no God. God has no real impact in the way that they are living their lives. And, and Sharnock goes on to say, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what your lips are articulating about your belief in God. Your life will show whether or not you are a follower of the Lord or you are a practical atheist. And here's, here's the, 
the interesting part about this verse. He takes this verse on practical atheism and applies it to everybody. Look what he says there in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Then he says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all, notice that word all, turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So here's what David is saying. Humanity finds themselves living as if there is no God. They reject knowledge of God. If you look there in your notes, we are, or at some point in our lives, we have been guilty of practical atheism. Living with no regard to God. And here's how I know this. You say, you call me an atheist? Yes, I am. Practically. Here's how I know this. Paul quotes this in Romans 3. And Paul quotes these verses that says, There's none good. There's none that seek after God. Man is totally depraved. They're not seeking after God. God had to come seek after them for them to be saved. He had to come intersect their lives for them to be saved. And so Paul uses the same passage to say, Humanity has all chosen to live their lives with no regard for God. And that's all of our stories. James Johnson says it like this, This describes men and women today, too. Human nature has not changed. We think to ourselves, who needs God? I run my business without Him. I have a family without Him. I pay my mortgage without Him. I can do life my way. And so we deny God any meaningful place in our lives. We deny God any meaningful place in our plans and decisions. God is not relevant to real life. Functionally, we deny that God exists. And so the point is this. No matter where you are today in terms of your belief in God and your relationship with God, there was a time where you lived your life with no regard for God. You ignored His will, His way, His commandments, His person, His reality, and you did your own thing. The Bible calls that rebellion. I don't care what you say, I'm going to do things my way. The Bible calls that sin. Choosing your own path. And guess what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we've all experienced living our lives as practical atheists. That's why we need a Savior. So the first part of this psalm is the sad universality of depravity. We're all in the same boat. We've all sinned against God and lived as if God is not real in our lives. But number two, I want to talk about the amazing reality. I want to juxtapose that with the amazing reality of salvation. Because after David talks about the universality of sin and rebellion against God, going their own way, doing their own thing, he uses some really interesting words. For example, look what he uses there in verse 4. Have they no knowledge of all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread? So he's talking of, of... of the evil who are mistreating his people. He's speaking here in context of the nation of Israel, his chosen people. But notice here he calls them his people. His people. And then look what he says in verse 5. Therefore they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So earlier in the psalm he says, everybody has sinned, there's none who does good, but now he says there are some folks who are described as the generation of the righteous. And then, look what it says in verse 7. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of His people. 
So how do we reconcile this idea that all of humanity has rebelled against God, there's none good, none righteous, none seeking after God, and yet there are a group of people who are called His people, the generation of the righteous. How how do we reconcile those two thoughts? Well, God in His grace has made salvation available to ruined sinners. He's made salvation available to practical atheists like you and me. We lived our life as if there was no God, rejecting God, rebelling against God, not obeying God, running from God, and yet God loved us so much, He sent His only Son to come and die on the cross for our sins. So while depravity is universal, everybody's a sinner, everybody's rejected God, everybody's rebelled against God, salvation is not. You can be saved from your sin, but salvation is not for everyone. Here in this context, he's speaking of his chosen people. He entered into a covenant with Abraham and built a great nation and preserved a great nation called the the Hebrews or the Jews. And through that nation, he sent his son Jesus, who came to be the Messiah, to die for the sins of the world. And Jesus came to die to make salvation available for you and for me. So you say, Pastor Wade, how do I know that I belong to God the way the Jews belong to God? How can I be a part of the generation of the righteous? How can I know that I belong to him? There's only one way. And Jesus said it like this over in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through me. Jesus said there's only one way to be saved. It's only through Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his substitutionary atonement, his, uh, his defeat of the grave. Only through Christ can we be forgiven of our sin and given the hope of eternal life. And so here's the cool thing. Yes, we're all sinners. Yes, we've all rebelled against God. We've all lived our lives at some point as practical atheists. But God loves us and makes a way for us to be saved. So if you look there in your notes. The fact that God has made us or has made a way for practical atheists to be saved from their sin and rebellion should be astounding to us. And and this is the point that that Paul's getting at over in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul's saying there was a time when you were enslaved to the world, you were enslaved to the enemy, the devil, and you were enslaved to your own sin nature, your flesh. You were in bondage to these things, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it goes on to say in verse 4, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So when you look at Psalm 14 and you see that practical atheism is a universal issue that we've all dealt with at some time in our lives, living as if there is no God, and yet God makes a way for us to be his people, 
to be saved, to belong to Him, that is amazing grace. And it should astound us. I don't know why it is, but do you remember when you were first saved? Do you remember the joy of your salvation when you met Christ? You were newly converted. You'd experienced forgiveness, a relationship with God. And there was joy. There was excitement. It, it, everything was, was, was wonderful, right? But over time, because we get busy and we get distracted, we lose the joy of our salvation. And, and we cease to be amazed by grace. And Psalm 14 is one of those psalms that says, Hey, I, I see myself in that. I see who I used to be, and now I belong to God because of Jesus. And it's amazing. It's astounding. That's what this psalm should do for us. As I was studying this, I came across an old hymn by Isaac Watts called How Sweet and Awful Is This Place, or some of the newer hymns titled How Sweet and Awesome Is This Place. That's the meaning of the word awful there. How sweet and awesome is this place. And And in this hymn, Isaac Watts is talking about what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. And specifically, what it's going to be like when we get to heaven and we experience the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be food in heaven. Can I get a witness? All right? There's going to be a marriage supper. And he's trying to, in song, get across what it's going to be like to get get to heaven and be like, here I am. Wow. And here's the, the, the lyrics of this song. How sweet and awful or awesome is this place with Christ within the doors while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, marriage supper of the Lamb, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? At that moment when we all get together in heaven, when Jesus serves us at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're going to be thinking about grace. Because we're going to look back over our lives and say, I don't deserve to be here. It's grace. Why am I a guest? Why should I have a seat at the table with Jesus? It's, it's, it's grace. It's grace. And that's what Psalm 14 speaks into our lives. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.